If you had asked me in high school about my favorite subject, I would have said history. I liked my history classes. What I have learned since then is that I am not as actually interested in history itself as I am in uh, biography. I like to learn about people and what they have done and why, how they faced uh, the challenges of their time, how they endured suffering, how they thought about life and relationships and politics and history and, and faith themselves. Uh, for example, I've been thinking about something that I learned from Eleanor Roosevelt uh, in the Ken Burns documentary about the Roosevelts. Uh, there was an episode about her childhood. She grew up in a very dysfunctional home. Her father was an alcoholic. Her mother was a narcissist. And um, her mother used to get terrible migraine headaches and would sit in her darkened room for hours at a time. And Eleanor, when she was a seven-year-old girl, would go in and take wet washcloths, cool cloths, and put them on her mother's head and sit with her for hours. And Eleanor Roosevelt said, the feeling that I was useful was perhaps the greatest joy I experienced. The narrator said, that would be true all her life. To be useful was to feel that she belonged to someone. If she could not be loved, she could at least be needed. She wrote this later uh, about love in a family. Listen to this. Up to a point, it is good for us to know that there are people in the world who will give us love and unquestioned loyalty. I doubt, however, if it is good for us to feel assured of this devotion without the accompanying obligation of having to justify this devotion by our behavior. What a strange statement. This, this great humanitarian believed that unconditional love was kind of good for you, but not completely good for you. And that what you really need, uh, you should only have the assurance of someone's love if you earn it through their behavior, your behavior. That's so alien from what we Christians believe about God's love, isn't it? God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's what I learned from Stephen Ambrose about the differences between Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon. I hope they're true. Uh, Stephen Ambrose loved Dwight Eisenhower and he loathed Richard Nixon. But here's what he said. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower had the uh, tremendous capacity to form and keep friends. Eisenhower collected friends by the dozens. Richard Nixon didn't have any friend, friends. He didn't trust anyone. Now think about the different paths that those two men take, took in life and how maybe those uh, temperaments, characteristics shaped their lives. Um, here's what I learned from Carl Sandburg's biography about Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln hated wearing gloves. It was the fashion of the time. He hated wearing gloves. But his wife Mary thought he needed to wear gloves everywhere. So he would put a pair of gloves on in her presence and then take them off when he was absent from her and stuff them in his pockets. And then she would see him not wearing gloves. Oh, Abraham lost another pair. So she kept buying gloves for this poor man. One time he reached into his coat and found eight pairs of gloves stuffed into his pockets. The contest of wills between Mary and Abraham Lincoln. Uh, did you know that there are 15,000 books about Abraham Lincoln in print? Uh, there are more books in the world about Abraham Lincoln than about any other person except for one, Jesus of Nazareth. This week we're going to begin a studying a book, uh, one of those first books written about him. I've mentioned it several times 
Today we're going to begin reading together the good news about Jesus according to Matthew. This is the day for our introductory talk. Uh, If you've been around for a while, you're used to these talks. Uh, More information than application. I'm going to give you more of a lecture today than a sermon. I want to orient you to this book. I want to tell you where we're going over the next few weeks uh, and months in the book of Matthew. Now, let's begin by talking about what Matthew is. What is Matthew? It's a gospel, clearly. It's a gospel. A gospel is not the same thing as a biography, especially not the way we think about biographies uh, today. The gospels are biographies with a point. They tell the story about Jesus, but alongside the story, they, they have a specific purpose. In that sense, they're kind of like fables, except they're true. They're, they're stories with a point. Uh, you can imagine in the early days of the church, you can imagine as, as the good news about Jesus spreads, there's this great hunger to know uh, more about him. The early followers of Jesus had a lot of questions. So wherever they went, the apostles would be asked to tell stories about Jesus. What was it like really being with him? What did he look like? What kinds of things did he say? Tell me about the funniest thing Jesus ever said to you. Hmm. Uh, the, the stories, they began to be written down. And they were written down not just to convey information, to satisfy curiosity, but to serve the needs of those who read them. So the apostles would, would interact with people and they'd ask questions about Jesus and the apostles would observe what was going on in the churches. And the apostles would, you know, uh, I have this question about what it means to follow Jesus. Oh, that reminds me of a story of one of the things that I saw Jesus do. Let me tell you the story. And if I tell you the story, it will answer that question that you have. You can see this a little bit in the Gospel of Luke. Look at how Luke begins. Luke 1.1. 1, 1. I know we're not in Luke, but here's, uh, this illustrates my point. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that, here's the purpose, why did Luke do this? So that you would know the certainty of the things you've been taught. There's a lot of circulating stories, Luke says, but I did the necessary footwork, I talked to the eyewitnesses myself, and I wrote this account, and I did it so that you could be sure of the things that you've heard. All the things that you have heard about what it means to follow Jesus, let me tell you, they do have their origin in him, things he said, things he did. Now, I wish we had a statement like that for the book of Matthew. We have a statement like that for the book of John. John says, I wrote what I'm writing so that you can believe that Jesus is God's son, that you can have life in his name. John did it. Luke gave us a purpose statement. Matthew didn't. We're going to have to figure that out as we go along in the gospel. But these four gospels are carefully crafted stories. They have selected details. There's overlap between them. They tell the same story. But they're each written with a particular aim, a particular way to help you follow Jesus in a specific way. When you first pick up a gospel or any book of the Bible, actually, it's good to think through some of the introductory issues. We spend some time thinking about these. Uh, Who who wrote this book? Um, Where did they write it from? Why did they write it? When did they write it? What were some of the first readers who read this book? In the context, that can help you Uh, with your reading. All four Gospels in the New Testament are technically anonymous. 
The author's name is not anywhere in any of those books. And we have a woeful, a, 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 a very short amount of information about the first readers. We don't know who they were. We don't know where they lived. Richard Bauckham an expert in the Gospels. He says this is on purpose because the Gospels are for all of us. Now think about this. The letters of Paul, the books of Moses, the Psalms of David... Those books are so closely tied to the authors and the places and the people they were writing to uh, that, that their fingerprints are all over them. That's not true with the Gospels. There's early tradition. There is very strong tradition that this book that we're going to read is associated with Matthew the Apostle. It's been called Matthew since almost the time that it was written. Actually, it's the good news about Jesus, the Gospel according to Matthew, as recorded by Matthew. Um, There's no real reason to doubt that Matthew wrote this, but it's not in the text itself. So apparently we don't need to know it. Because if we needed to know it in order to read the book well, God would have told us who wrote it. What's important for us, I think, when we read the Gospels, though, is to recognize that we are reading trustworthy eyewitness accounts. That's what we have in the Gospels. Trustworthy eyewitness accounts. I mention that because that's not what most academics believe about the Gospels. There is this dominant view in our world. It's the view of the Gospels that you'd hear in every religion class in any state school or any col- most colleges and universities um, in the United States. That the Gospels are a little bit of truth about this teacher named Jesus of Nazareth mixed in with a lot of legends. That the story of Jesus in the New Testament was created and crafted by early Christians. Two or three generations removed from Jesus and his first followers. They made up these stories in order to form Christianity. That's the view you would hear in a lot of different places. There's a lot of problems with that view, though. Uh, Let me just mention a couple of them. The Gospels are too early to be legends. They're too early to be legends. All 27 books of the New Testament were completed in their current form between 30 and 60, sorry, 40 and 60 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. You can't create legends that quickly. For example, it's been 43 years since Elvis died. Um, There are some kooks who believe he's alive. Hold up with John F. Kennedy in a bunker somewhere. Okay, there are some kooks who believe that. But, but no one is circulating stories, Jesus-type stories about Elvis, that he raised the dead or that he healed people or that he was a great teacher. No one's doing that. You couldn't pull that off. So the Gospels are too early to be legends. Second, they're too detailed to be legends. Ancient legends are not as specific as the Gospels are. Uh, Third, there's too many counterproductive details in them for them to be legends. Too many counterproductive details. If you wanted to convince the world that the man crucified by the Romans was alive, you would not write that his earliest and closest followers didn't believe and were skeptical that he would rise from the dead. That's not how you would do that. In fact, if you wanted to convince the world that Jesus was alive, you would paint his disciples as... Early believers, oh yes, we believe. You would write the resurrection story this way. You would have them standing outside the tomb on Sunday morning with welcome back Jesus banners. That's how you would tell that story. 
Or at least you'd put somebody there. At least one of his followers would be there to welcome him back. There's too many counterproductive details in this book, in these books for them to be legends. Finally, uh, Peter Williams argues that the Gospels, they're not legends because they bear all the marks of eyewitnesses. He has lots of arguments in his book. If, you, if you're ever interested in learning more about this, you should read Peter Williams' book. It's easy to read. It's called, Can We Trust the Gospels? Peter Williams is a brilliant scholar. He wrote this book for his family members who are not followers of Jesus and not scholars themselves. So, Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter Williams? But um, he writes about their, their take on geography. In the Gospels, they knew about writing, they knew uh, writing about going up to Jerusalem and going down to Jericho. They knew that. Or um, in John chapter 3, John the Baptist, it says, baptized people at Anon because there was enough water there. I love that little detail. He baptized them because there was enough water there. You'd have to be there to see that. You'd have to be there to see that and know, actually, that also tells us that they were immersing because you don't need a lot of water to pour or sprinkle. So one for the Baptist, yes, okay, all right, good, good. But, but you've you, you got to be there to know that. You can't just tell it from a map. You've got to be there to see it, that there's enough water there to, to immerse people in water. So these books arise from eyewitness accounts, people who knew Jesus, people who followed him, people who saw him. On the back of that gray note sheet, or maybe the front, depending on how you you picked it up, um, I give you a chart. I sometimes give you these charts when we start a new book. They're not inspired. They're not completely original to me. Um, They represent my effort to help you think your way through the book. What you'll see there in the bold text, central to Matthew are the five major sermons in the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew seems to build his book around them. There's the introduction uh, where he tells about Jesus' birth, and then there is uh, these, uh, a conclusion at the end, the passion and resurrection of Jesus, and then these sermons. Sermon, then story. Sermon, then stories. Sermon, then stories. And the stories seem to reflect back on the sermons a little bit. For example, um, in chapter 10, there's what I'm, I called the Sermon on Mission. Jesus told the disciples, you're going to go, I'm sending you out, you're going to experience opposition, and there's going to be suffering, but go. And then the stories that follow show Jesus himself encountering opposition in the mission that God gave him to do. So the stories seem to reflect back on the point of the sermon. If you count them, I divided Matthew into about 16 sections there. That does not mean that there's going to be 16 sermons on the book of Matthew. No one is that fortunate. Last week, uh, somebody said to me, well, uh, Doug Finkbeiner did the book of Job in one sermon. You ought to be able to do Matthew in about 12 minutes. (laughs) I have tentatively uh, divided the book of Matthew into 86 preaching passages. So if you do the math, you figure 52 weeks a year, take into account uh, holidays, vacations, missionary guests, it will probably take us about two years to work our way through the book of Matthew. So spring of 2022. If I time it right, we'll do the resurrection in Matthew on Easter Sunday, but that's probably not going to happen. Uh, 
Haddon Robinson was a great teacher of preachers in the 20th century. He said you should never do a series that lasts longer than eight weeks because people can't take it. Um, he vastly underestimated your ability to suffer. So thank you, Haddon Robinson. Um, actually, 86 sermons on Matthew is actually a low number. James Montgomery Boyce preached 70 sermons on the Sermon on the Mount alone. So, um, now, it would be profitable for us to take a microscope to this book. We could take a microscope to this book. We could spend one or two weeks on each of the Beatitudes. What does it really mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Why that would be beneficial to really soak in that and think about that. Or to take apart each uh, line of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That would be beneficial. But the problem with that is um, you risk losing the forest for all of the trees. Um, you end up losing the story that Matthew told. You actually end up uh, teaching a series of conjoined topical sermons and you miss the overall story that Matthew told. Why did Matthew put the Sermon on the Mount where he did? And what was he trying to accomplish? What's he trying to tell us about Jesus by putting the Sermon on the Mount where it is and summarizing it the way that he did? How does it contribute to our overall understanding of who Jesus is because of the Sermon on the Mount and his presence there? So, my goal, I want to maintain a good balance between catching the details of the text and keeping a hold of the whole picture. You can tell me in March 2022 if I accomplished that goal. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time, we'll set aside the chart for a minute, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about the content of the book of Matthew, the great themes of the book of Matthew. I'm going to borrow uh, these themes from Douglas Sean O'Donnell. Uh, he says these themes comprise the melodic line of the Gospel of Matthew. All four Gospels tell the same story, so they're in the same key, he says. They have the same bass line and same rhythm section, but the melody is, is different. And to help find the me- melodic line in the Gospel of Matthew, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 28. Right, we're going to go to the end to find the melodic line of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28, this passage of Scripture that many of you are very familiar with, I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16, the end, the very end of the book. So Matthew 28 and verse 16. We're going to look at a few passages in Matthew uh, as we go along this morning. I want to read this, though. Matthew 28, verse 16. This is what the text says. Then the eleven disciples, after the resurrection, went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Trace the melody here. It's found in the four alls in these verses. They're listed in the design at the top of the page. Uh, Aaron Krauss made that heading for us. I appreciate that. The four great themes that will guide us in the months to come. First, Jesus has all authority. Jesus has all authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Many of you have been to one of Grace's membership classes. Uh, You might remember this. One of the key questions in the Gospel of Matthew is, who speaks for God? Who has the right, who has the authority to speak on God's behalf? Is it Jesus or is it the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders? And Matthew's answer is, Jesus has that authority. Jesus speaks for God. And his authority is on display in almost every chapter in this book. You can trace it. Um, I just want to mention three of the ways that his authority is evident. First, his authority is evident in his teaching. It's evident in his teaching. Look with me at Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the main point of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. He teaches... What does Matthew want us to know after Jesus gives this brilliant lesson in Matthews 5 through 7? Matthew 7:28 says, "When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law." Jesus has unique teaching authority. We'll see that over and over again. Second, his works demonstrate his authority. So his teaching demonstrates his authority. His works demonstrate his authority. Look at chapter 8, verse 27. Just a page over. Jesus calms the storm. He tells the wind and waves to stop, and they do. And Matthew 8, 27 says, The men were amazed at this and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Who can do that? Who has the authority to tell nature to stop? Jesus does. Uh, Now, notice how Jesus' authority uh, to forgive sins is on display in his works. So, look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 6. Jesus' working authority, his miracles, demonstrate his authority to forgive sins. Matthew 9, 6. But I want you to know, Jesus says, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Do you? Yep, and here's how I'm going to show you. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. The man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. Jesus has all authority. It's evident in his works. It's evident in his teaching. And third, it's evident in his titles. It's evident in his titles. Right from the beginning, he is identified as king of the Jews. He's born king of the Jews. One of the great questions that Matthew answers for us is, if Jesus is the king, where's the kingdom? If he's the king of the Jews, where's the kingdom? And uh, Matthew's going to tell us, uh, Jesus did not bring the kingdom that the Jews expected. And the problem is not in any sense with him. He is the king of the Jews. We'll talk about where his kingdom is um, later. Or in, in chapter 26, I won't have you turn there, but in chapter 26, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. That's one of his favorite titles for himself. He's the son of man. And he's plugging into a reference uh, to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says, 7 says, I saw one like the son of man who was given authority over all things. Jesus has authority. You should at least be a little intimidated by what Jesus claims here in Matthew 28. All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If anyone else made this claim, if anyone else you knew made this claim, you would have some serious questions. 
Picture it here. Day two of your honeymoon and your new husband turns to you and says, all authority in this marriage is mine. I'm not sure the rest of the honeymoon would be that warm and friendly. Or uh, Governor Wolf on Inauguration Day stands up and says, All authority in the state of Pennsylvania has been given to me. And we say, No, 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 no. This is a commonwealth with a constitution. You're the elected governor. The people have the authority. And we have given you a little bit of it for a little bit of time. We have rights. And Jesus says, Rights? Jesus doesn't know anything about this rights talk. He has all authority. And he presumes to manage every part of your life. He tells you who to forgive. Jesus presumes the right in your life to command you to forgive people who have hurt you. He presumes to manage your sex life which is guaranteed to frustrate a lot of people. Jesus doesn't care at all about your my body, my choice banners. Jesus presumes to have authority to tell you what to do with your money, which bothers a lot of other people. He, he's not at all troubled by your arguments that you earned your money and you have a right to keep it. That doesn't bother Jesus at all. He tells you what to think. He tells you what to feel. He tells you what to do. He tells you what to love. If Jesus' authority, if his claim to authority doesn't bother you, it's probably because you don't understand how extensive it is. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If he really has that much authority, he better be trustworthy. I hope he knows what he's doing. If he really has that much authority, I hope he's also kind. All authority. Now the second all in this passage is all nations. All nations. Now this is odd to think about in the book of Matthew because Matthew is the most oriented book gospel toward the Jews. You, you can see that in the early chapters of, of Genesis, uh, sorry, with Matthew, uh, Matthew's fulfillment language. Jesus is the embodiment of the fulfillment of scriptures. He's tied to Abraham. He's tied to David. He's tied to Moses. He's the king of the Jews. He's their Messiah. And Matthew beats that drum more than any of the other gospels. At the same time, though, this book is for all nations. It's for all nations. How do we know that? Jesus told us. When Gentiles, when non-Jews appear in the gospels, in the book of Matthew, they're the heroes of faith. Um, Look with me at Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, um, Jesus meets a, uh, the servant of a Roman centurion. Actually, he meets uh, the centurion himself, sorry, about a sick servant. So in Matthew chapter 8, verse um, 10, the centurion talks about his faith in Jesus. And verse 10 says, When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. This Roman soldier is the hero of faith in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says, I don't know any Jew who has the faith that this man does. Huh. We'll talk about this next week, Lord willing, but there are four women in the genealogy of Jesus. Three of the four of them are non-Jews who married into the nation are included in Jesus' family tree. 
This is good news. The book of Matthew is good news for all nations, all sorts of people. That's really good for us to hear and really good for us to think about uh, for a couple of reasons. You know, the, the way that we're most often he- hear about evangelical Christians these days, what are evangelical Christians these days? The way that we most often hear about us is that we are a white conservative voting block. That's what we are. What's an evangelical Christian? Well, if you find out the way that we're, we're, talk, we're spoken about the most uh, in magazines, on television, we are white Republicans with a religious kind of flavor. That's what we are. That's what evangelical Christians are. Uh, that's not actually what we are. Uh, did you know that sometime this decade, the nation with the highest number of Christians will become China? It's going to happen sometime in the 2020s, maybe before we finish Matthew. There will be more Christians in China than in the United States. Uh, when you think of Christianity, don't think of a white voter from Mississippi. Think instead of a Chinese boy. Or the average Christian in the world, a Nigerian woman with seven children who worships with her family on on Sundays in a cinder block building with a dirt floor. This all nations theme is important because it points to the uniqueness of Christianity. Tim Keller has pointed this out. Most of the major religions of the world have stayed centered where they started. Islam started in the Middle East and Islam is centered in the Middle East. Uh, Hinduism started in India and most of the Hindus of the world live in India. Buddhism started in uh, Asia and most uh, uh, Buddhists in the world live in Asia. But Christianity started in Jerusalem. It spread to the Mediterranean world. It moved, the center of Christianity moved to northern Europe, spread across the Atlantic. And now there are more Christians south of the equator than there are north of the equator. That's moved to the southern world. All nations... The followers of Jesus come in all different shades and they speak all different languages. If the language of heaven is determined by popular vote, we won't be speaking English. And most of us here are going to be in the minority. All nations. All nations. Now third, all allegiance. All allegiance. On the basis of his authority over all nations, Jesus told the disciples to uh, make disciples of all nations. And that disciple-making work involved teaching them to obey all of his commands. Everything I have commanded you, all my commands, teach them. He's worthy of all allegiance, all of our obedience. Here's, here's just a moment for some technicalities. Just, just a moment. Some, a little inside baseball. I'm going to try to be both brief and clear for just a second. Followers of Jesus uh, sometimes struggled with putting Jesus' commands in the Gospels before his death and resurrection together with what it looks like to follow him after his death and resurrection. So the death and resurrection of Jesus is a major transition in the Bible, the major transition in the Bible. Up until that point in the Bible... The focus in the Bible is God's dealing centrally with the nation of Israel. Not exclusively, but centrally with the nation of Israel. The way to demonstrate your faith in the God who is, is to follow the law of Moses. Worship at the temple. Offer sacrifices. Keep the Sabbath. Tithe. Follow all 614 commands that Moses gave. After the resurrection of Jesus, things are different 
there are, the focus is not on the nation of Israel, but on the church, the body of Christ. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles, and Jesus' followers have a different sort of relationship to the law. You can see that transition in the book of Galatians. Paul says, circumcision's not a big deal. Paul, how can you say that? Circumcision's a very big deal. Ah, but after the resurrection, circumcision doesn't matter. Or uh, we, we follow this uh, a little bit in the book of Acts when we studied through the book of Acts a while ago. At the beginning of the book of Acts, the church is composed of mostly Jewish followers of Jesus. They meet together in the temple. They continue to follow the law. They continue to offer sacrifices. At the end of Acts, there's Gentile followers of Jesus all over the place. How do we trace that transition? Now, what's interesting here, in Matthew, Jesus is speaking to Jews in the land, and he tells them to follow the law. Tithe your mint and cumin. And, and some readers, because of that, have sidelined the commands of Jesus. They've talked about how the Sermon on the Mount is not for us today, but it's for them there. One of the problems, though, with distancing the commands of Jesus like that is that this passage here in Matthew 28, or the whole Gospel of Matthew, was written after the resurrection for people who live after the resurrection. He, he knows, Matthew knows what he's doing. And, and what does he want us to do? He wants us to teach people to follow all of Jesus' commands. So how do we do that? Teach people to obey everything that Jesus commanded. We're going to have to figure out how that works. Central to that is what he says in Matthew chapter 5. Look at Matthew 5, 17. We're going to try and figure this out as we go through this book. Matthew 5, 17. And then we're done with inside baseball here after we read this passage. Do not think, he says in Matthew 5.17, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So, all allegiance, all Jesus' commands. We're going to figure out how that works and how that unfolds in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, finally here, we're going to cheat. All authority... All nations, all allegiance, always with you. Always with you. Jesus is with us. He said at the end, I am with you always. It's an emphasis in the beginning of Matthew. Jesus is born. He's going to have the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's in the middle in Matthew 18:20. Jesus said, forever two or three gather in my name. There am I with them. When the church is at work, Jesus is with us. This is both comfort and accountability. It's a comfort. He's with us. Jesus is with us. He has not left us alone. He's with us, but he's also with us. At congregational meetings, when we vote, Jesus is with us. When we affirm new elders, when we welcome new members, when we discipline members, Jesus is with us. Oh, we better represent him well. We, we better do this right because he's with 
us. So next week we officially begin, I will say, for the first of 89 times, turn with me in your Bible to the book of Matthew. We're going to start in verse 1, chapter 1. Next week will be genealogy week. It will be exciting. Uh, Trust me, it will be exciting-ish. So um, Howard Hendricks used to encourage us to read the Gospels. He would say to us, Master the Master's life. Master the Master's life. Why? Because Jesus has all authority over all nations. He is worthy of all allegiance, and he made us the promise he is always with us. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and uh, we look forward to this book, reading this book, studying this book in the the next uh, several months, couple of years that we have. Oh, Lord, help me not to blow it. Help me not to bore people with the Bible. This, this, the greatest of all lives. Uh, we can be sloppy with it sometimes, teachers and preachers are. So, so, so help me as I, as I study to see the wonder and the beauty and the glory of it. That we would be in awe of the authority that is the Lord Jesus. And that we would in response to it grant to him all of our allegiance for the sake of all the nations. Help us as we read it and as we study it to pay close attention. Give us ears to hear. Help us not to be like those in the Gospel of Matthew who saw Jesus and heard Jesus and turned away and rejected him. We, we will not attribute to legend, we will not attribute to Satan the things that the Lord Jesus has said and done. So help us. Lord, you commanded us to make disciples by teaching us to uh, teach people to obey everything that you have commanded. So give us strength for that task that our discipleship of the Lord Jesus would be evident to all as we kneel before him, he who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's in his name that we pray these things together, saying, Amen.